My grandfather uh, on my, my dad's side uh, died in 1968, so I, I didn't re remember him very much. Um, but we have some of these old reel-to-reel -reel things, you know, in, 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 in my, my folks' house. And there are a couple of messages that he preached um, that are still, uh, are still left. And I've, I've, I've heard one or two of them. Um, uh, there's a snippet from the upper room teaching of Christ where um, he makes the point uh, when, when Jesus said to Philip, Philip, you know, have I, have I been such a, a long time with you and uh, still you don't know me? And the point he was making was that, in fact, the disciples had only been with Jesus for about three years. And he was talking about that as a long time. And that they should have known him an awful lot better, you know, for that length of time. I've always found that very challenging, actually, to think about how long some of us have been on the road, so to speak, uh, as well as our Christian faith is concerned. And uh, we say that we know the Lord. And, and how well do we know him? How much have we grown and developed? The greatest thing in all our life we were singing is, is to know you. And that's what this series is about just now. It's about the importance of knowing God and understanding that we'll only really know ourselves properly and, and who we should be and what we should be if, if we know him. It's a challenge, I think, to all of us, isn't it? You know, so many people have, have never really, although they think they have, come to the point of knowing God. The philosophers in Athens, you know, Paul looked on them for all their learning and said, you know, God is unknown to you. You're worshipping the unknown God. You're, you're in absolute ignorance of him. God is far more than you think he is in his greatness. Far more than you think he is as far as his, as his nearness and as far as as his holiness is concerned. So here we are today, and we know that there is the possibility from the history of Scripture that, that people can come to know him. We know him in all his fullness in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at people like uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar even and, and Job. We're going to be looking at at Isaiah tonight and his experience and his growing understanding and knowledge of God, particularly the holiness of God. So we're going to read that well-known passage uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, if you could turn there uh, with me, please. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts uh, tonight. King Uzziah's death uh, was a real tragedy. You can, you can read about the detail of that, by the way, in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 26. King Uzziah was a, was a powerful king until it all went to his head. Uh, pride got the better of him. And on one occasion, not content with being the king, uh, he thought that he would like to be the high priest as well. He forced himself into the temple, uh, past the priests, uh, who tried to resist him. He had a, uh, an incense holder with him. Uh, he was determined that he was going to offer this in the temple of God to be king and to be priest as well. Uh, as he was trying to do that, the description was that the leprosy began to appear on his forehead and on his face. And the priests began to hurry him out of the temple. He was king. And yet for the rest of his reign, he had to live in a separate house. Isolated, excluded uh, because of his affliction, his leprosy. He was banned from the temple. He was never allowed because of his leprosy, to be there again. And on the year of his death, when he died and was buried, it tells us in the chapter in Second Chronicles, he was not buried along with all the other kings, his progenitors. He was buried in a separate, isolated cemetery because of that. All of this is high in the consciousness of the nation, these events are high in the awareness of the people, including Isaiah himself, as he writes his experience here. And the contrast could not be greater, because what is he describing here? He's describing the words, in the words of verse 5, his eyes having seen the king, not Uzziah, but the king the Lord Almighty. And rather than seeing someone who bears the scars and marks of leprosy, which was always symbolic of uncleanness, 
and of sin, actually, in its separateness effect, this king, in this temple that he sees, is a king that's marked by purity and, and, by, and by holiness. And rather than a proud and a, a presumptuous and an afflicted earthly king, his eyes are taken up with the holiness of the king in heaven. Now, there are four things I'm going to try and just touch on. We're going to obviously think about the fact, and and there are just little phrases that are taken from the main sections uh, of our reading. Uh, We're going to obviously think about the fact that God is holy and what that means. And then we're going to take up from uh, verse 5, secondly, what Isaiah says about himself when he says, I am ruined. And then thirdly, um, from verse number 7, we'll talk about the reality of how sin can be atoned for. And then finally, his, uh, his volunteering statement, here am I, send me. So let's think first of all then about the description of of the holiness of God that's given for us here uh, in this passage. Uh, You'll notice that that God is described here as being enthroned. He's sitting upon a throne um, and this throne is is exalted. The symbolism of course is very clear. You know, he's on the throne as the king the most important person. And this throne is not an ordinary throne. It is higher than any other throne in its height, in its, in its exaltation, in its majesty, and, and in its importance. And, and this throne is within the temple, the very presence of God, the center point where God dwells among his people. And the majesty of God is not just limited to a part of that temple. It fills it. The train, the symbolic language uh, depicts a, a robe that, that fills the entire space. And so God is exalted and fills all of that area in the description of his glory. And of course, what Isaiah witnesses here is actually a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. That is included, of course, we know that we can't divide the Godhead up into segments and sections. And that God here, in a sense we can imply, is being portrayed and depicted uh, as the Trinity. The very fact that the word holiness is used three times you know, uh, certainly implies that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you get this uh, further down in verse number 8 as well in implication when first of all when the question is asked in the singular, whom shall I send? And then in the plural, who will go for us? And so We know from John chapter 12 and the reference at verse number 14 in that chapter 
where an Isaiah is quoted and it actually says, because Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and he wrote about him, he spoke about him. And so included in this vision is the, is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ within his temple. And all of Isaiah's senses are affected by this tremendous vision. First of all, we have a, a kind of category uh, or species of angelic beings. Not the common ones that in fact are described for us, which are cherubim. Here we have a, a group of, of angels and, and we don't know how many of them there are. I guess in my mind when I've, I've always read this, I just thought there was you know, two or three of them who were there in the temple. But I mean, it doesn't actually say that. There may have been two or three. There could have been hundreds of them. It doesn't actually give us a number. And we know that frequently when the angels are described in the presence of God, there are multitudes of them. So this particular category of, of, of angelic beings are described with, with the six wings. And for all their greatness, what they're doing is they're, they're in awe of the holiness of God. That is their message. That is what they announce. Their proclamation, the words that come perhaps from all of these angels, perhaps the hundreds of them, saying the same thing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. As they cover their faces and they cover their feet in reverence before God as they fly to do his service and, and his bidding. He sees them. He hears them. He hears the, the noise of their wings, the rustle of their wings. And there are other things that assault his senses and that make the point. There, there is the shaking of the doors, the palpable sense of the power of God. There is the the, the smell of the smoke in his nostrils. Perhaps this is the smoke that comes from the altar that is later on mentioned in the vision and that, that smarts his eyes and, and everything is affected. What he sees, what he hears, what he feels. There is the overwhelming sense of the glory and the majesty of God and over above all of that, specifically, it is the idea of, of, God's, of God's holiness that is being impressed upon him. Impressed upon him. Now, you know what it's like when something does impress itself upon you and, and you, know, you have to stop what you're doing. Uh, the street down from our house that I go to work in the morning... You know, in a good day, when the sun is coming up, the angle of that road means that sometimes I actually have to stop the car because I can't see anything. I can't see if anything's coming towards me. I have to wait for a while. I have to get the angle right because the sight of the sun, you know, um, it really just uh, is too much for me to see anything else. And in a, in a small sense, 
That is an example of, of, of Isaiah's experience. And it's the holiness of God that stops him in his tracks. Now, God's holiness must never be understood in the sense that sometimes people convey holiness. You know, Rob, Rob, Robbie Burns, Robbie Burns, our national bard, you know, had a, had a poem called uh, Holy Willie's Prayer, you know. And it was, it was meant to be, you know, a swipe at religious hypocrisy. At somebody who felt and who, who held himself up with a holier-than-thou attitude. And yet... He was not a holy person in the true sense of the word. I mean, we know all about that from our reading of the Pharisees. You know, and the, the, the meaning of their, their name, Pharisees, they, they were set apart, which is the essence of the meaning of the word holiness. And yet, their sense of being set apart was a sense of superiority and of pride. And there was a harshness about their setting a part of themselves. And it, it needed Christ to put the finger on these, these people and say, this is not true holiness. This is not holiness that God would describe in that way. He would say that the outside of the cup seems clean, but the inside is dirty. You're like sepulchres painted white, on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. And that is not true holiness. Sometimes we kind of shy away from, from holiness because it has a negative connotation for us. But when we, we, we mustn't think about it in those terms when we think about the holiness of God. True holiness is, to quote one of the Psalms, is the beauty of holiness. To worship God in the beauty of, of His holiness. And there is something that is magnificent when we think about God being devoted or set apart to everything that is good and all that is best and, and everything that is highest. You know, Strictly speaking, you know, that is what the word holiness means, set apart. And some instruments and utensils, for instance, in the tabernacle were described as being holy because they, they were set apart just for special use. They were only used for certain things. They were not used for common usage. And in that sense, that's what set apart means. I mean, the Lord Jesus uses that word about himself and he says, you know, I sanctify myself. Now that didn't actually mean that he was making himself a better person, a cleaner person. No, it meant that he was, he was setting himself apart. He was dedicating, he was devoting, he was committing himself to the work that his father had given him to do. He was, he was being set apart from that. And so when we think about the holiness of our God, 
This is who he is in essence. This is his nature and it is his character. He is completely devoted and set apart to everything that is good. And at the same time, he is set apart from all that is wicked, all that is corrupt, any kind of wrongdoing. He is distinct. And there is some sort of, of frightening beauty about somebody, in essence, who is like that. He's not like us. He is clean. He is pure. He is good. He is true. As we've noticed, even the angels have to hide their faces and have to cover their feet in his presence. God is holy. And we need to be reminded about that. It is such a fundamental point about the character and nature of God. The holiness of God. But then Isaiah, because of his experience of God's holiness, he responds to that. And he responds in verse 5 by saying, Woe to me, I'm, I'm ruined. I am ruined. I mean, he sees himself in, in a different light now. He looks at the holiness of God and then he looks at himself and he says, you know, I'm ruined. That, I looked up that word in different translations and various places. I, I am undone. You know, I feel as though I'm being dismantled. He felt his personality being taken apart, kind of deconstructed. He felt himself unraveled. He felt himself lost. He felt himself dirty before the presence of a holy of a holy God. A little bit like Peter, you remember? When Peter bows down before Christ and says, depart from me, for, for I am a sinful man, O God. Peter had come to that kind of realization about, about the uniqueness of the holiness of Christ. And that's what, what we have here. And in particular, he mentions his lips. His lips. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King. The Lord Almighty. I think that's mentioned because, of course, he's a prophet. He's a man who speaks. He speaks for God. He's meant to convey the message of God to the people. And as he thinks about how he does that and what he says and how he says it, you know, he, he feels convicted. My lips, the way I talk, it's, it's unclean. We know Scripture's got a lot to say about that, of course, about how we talk, about coarse language, about, about innuendo, about, about gossip, about tearing people down. And as far as God's 
people are concerned, who try to give the message of God, sometimes we're not speaking with authority or we're not speaking with tenderness and our lips are not are not what they should be and there's an uncleanness and sometimes we can ha- we can have anger and we can be unkind and i think all of these things were were part of of his awareness as he as he thought about the uncleanness and how his whole life seemed to just be undone and unraveled and dismantled when he says i'm ruined i'm ruined as I see myself in the presence of a holy God. And of course, this is the great problem for us, isn't it? God is holy, and, and we are not holy. And how can I then know God? How can I know God if I'm like this, so different from Him? And yet, you know, This is the first step, the first important step to know God. It is actually to feel ruined, to feel undone, and to admit our lostness, that we're not okay, and that everything is not fine, that it's not appropriate for us as we, as we read the Bible and as we think about spiritual things, for us to feel complacent and to think, no worry, there are no problems, my conscience is clear. We need to think about ourselves properly as we come before God and have a conviction of our sin. That is what God's Spirit and his great ministry to our hearts, among other things, does. He causes a conviction of sin. It's a good thing. Not if it finishes there, but as a first step, it's a good thing to be bothered about our sin, for it to shake us and to make us feel bad about ourselves as a first step. I wonder if all of us have been there. It goes against a lot of the kind of psychology of the day to, you know, uh, treat yourself well and pat yourself on the back and, you know, you're a good person and you deserve this. And um, Isaiah said, "I'm, I'm ruined. I have a problem here. Third point. I just want to kind of bring this point under the heading of what one of the seraphim said when he touched the lips of Isaiah with with a live coal from the altar. He said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God is holy. I am ruined sin atoned for. I think the symbolism is is very important in this section. As I said earlier, I think the symbolism here is that this coal in the temple was part of the altar. 
a live coal, a burning coal, a hot coal. And the, the coals were used to, to burn the animals up after they, were, uh, after they were sacrificed. Animals that the worshippers had brought to appease God with because of their sin. The wages of sin is death. And the, and the animal had to be offered. And, and, and it was offered upon the altar. And then it was burned. And it's with a coal from that place of sacrifice. A live, hot coal. That the seraphim touches the lips of Isaiah. And he said, look, now, now, your guilt has been taken away. Now, because of this, your sin has been atoned for. What's he driving at? What's the point uh, of all of this? Water couldn't clean the lips of Isaiah. It needed something much more powerful and much more potent to burn away the uncleanness on his lips, to, to sear it away, to, to cauterize off the filth that covered his lips. Something strong was required. And in spiritual terms, there's nothing stronger than the altar and what happened there. Because this is symbolic of Calvary. This is the place where the ultimate sacrifice was made. All these animals, they only pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice. The Lamb of God who would bear away the sin of the world. And so the altar, it pictures to us Christ upon the cross at Calvary. And the only thing that can remove sin and guilt, we know, is the living effect of the sacrifice of Christ. The hot coals of the death of Christ to touch our lives. That is the only thing that can remove guilt and atone for sin. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can that be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. The heat. The white heat of the suffering of Christ, the intensity of what happened to Christ when he took our sin and suffered for it. That is the thing that, that can sear off the guilt of our sin. Now it's good to just emphasize this point about guilt that he mentions. Your guilt is taken away. You know, that is our position before God guilty you know a lot of people don't feel guilty you know, a lot of people argue the toss argue their case it wasn't me you know 
And I, I am not guilty. I am innocent of this. You know, and I feel fine. No qualms, no conscience. doesn't matter how we feel. If our status is one of guilt, if that sentence has been passed, irrespective of how we feel about it, that is our position before God. Guilt. The whole world, says Romans. Every mouth closed. No recourse, nothing to say, no rejoinder, no arguments left. Irrespective of who we are, every mouth closed. The whole world, guilty. Guilt before God. You know, we need to emphasize these points increasingly in our day and age. And we need to feel the, the, great, the great sufficiency of the coal from the altar to deal with the issue of human guilt. And in addition, to say a few words about atonement. Atonement. Because the word atonement carries with it uh, the idea of God's wrath. We can't get around this. This is crucial and it's central. You know, that, that God is opposed because of his supreme holiness and his justice to always resist and oppose what is sinful and wrong. He won't change. And atonement means that the justice, the wrath of God is satisfied. Not that it's, this whole concept is kind of papered over or just kind of ignored, but, but it is completely addressed in the death of Christ. And what the death of Christ does is more than demonstrate that God loves us. And it does that. But it is an act of atonement. God is appeased. God is satisfied with the death of Christ. It completely meets all of his just demands. Totally. And that is why to guilty people, as Isaiah heard from this seraphim, God can say to us as well, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. If we have faith in Christ. You know, if we can say in the words of the hymn, you know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest strain, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Finally, as we close, there's a voice that comes. Notice the sequence. There's, you know, there's a logic in all of this. God is holy. I am ruined. Sin is atoned for. And there, there now is a question. There's a question that comes, and it's this. The voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And now, Isaiah. With a sense, yes, first of all, of his ruin, but now, in, in the sense of wonder, that, that he has had his sin atoned for, rather than hiding under a rock somewhere, he now feels that, that he can put his hand up and that he can step forward. 
And that he can volunteer his services. And that he can be the one who says, Here am I, Lord. Send me. You could, you could send me. Now, now that I have had a sense of all that you have done for me. You know, and the magnitude of this work of atonement that has been wrought in my life. And I feel the effect of that. I would like to step forward and offer my services for you. Here I am. Send me. And the thing is this. What he was told to do, if you read on the verses that, that, that uh, follow where we left off the reading, verses that are quoted in our New Testament to do with the ministry of Christ, it, it, was, it was not an easy gig. It was a pretty tough job that Isaiah had. He had to go and he had to speak to the people and they would listen, but they wouldn't hear. And his words to them were ineffective. They did not respond. And for years, that was his experience until eventually the people were taken into captivity into Babylon. For years. And it didn't, on a natural level, seem successful by any stretch of the imagination. But he persisted. He persevered. He did what he was told to do. Why? What sustained him in this? All of these things. A sense of God's holiness. Of what his natural state was. And yet how he had been forgiven. And God commissioned him. A sinner saved by grace to do his work. That kept him going. And how often many of us are there. You know, and the, you know, the, the difficulties of Christian service and the discouragements and the knockbacks. And, you know, one of the greatest things is just to keep on going as, as Isaiah did. And these are the things that sustain us today, that should sustain us today. And so as we, as we close here, you know, you know, the call of God still goes out to us tonight. I mean, the Lord is still saying, whom, whom, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? You know, God wants to send his people to, to a multitude of works of service whether they're here in this community or whether they're in some community in another part of the world. You know, God is, is not saying to us, you know, cocoon yourself, you know, keep yourself to yourself. He's saying, who will go for us? And it's for us prayerfully to respond. You know, here am I. Send me. There's something that we could be doing for the Lord. Could, could we be a, approaching the presence of a holy God in the same way that Isaiah was? With this sense. Lord, maybe I could go. With that sense of, of gratitude. As Mark read earlier. You know, God is holy. And he says to his people. Because I am holy, you, you need to be holy. This is what God is like. And this is what we are to be like. 
You know, that is our status. We have been sanctified by the work of Christ. And one of the key points of Christian living is that we are to be what we are. You know, by the help of God. May God bless his word. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful, magnificent vision of your holiness. Preserve us again from coming to Scripture in a, in a way that does not impact upon us or affect us or touch our hearts. In your presence, in the same way that Isaiah was so profoundly affected by this, we pray that for all of us, all these marvelous truths that have been contained in this passage will speak to our hearts so that we might worship you, so that we might live holy lives to adorn the doctrine of of our great God and Savior, and also to be your instruments in reaching out with this tremendous message of atonement to a world that is still ruined. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you tonight with our thanks in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.